Good morning, everybody. Pastor Paul here. It's a Wednesday morning, October 6, 2021. Glad you are joining us. If this is your first time or maybe first time in a while, this is an opportunity we take Monday through Friday to do a devotional series we're calling uh, Romans Rewind, which traces back some of the themes and scripture texts and and concepts and ideas that we are finding in our Sunday morning sermon series, preaching through the book of Romans at Four Oaks. But we're taking those elements where we don't have quite as much time to spend on them. We're diving into a little more detail here in uh, these devotionals. And we're in Romans chapter two now, where Paul is addressing the Jewish Christians in the church who were still holding on to this idea that because of their status as Israelites, God's chosen people, and specifically their uh, having received the sign of the covenant, circumcision, that this somehow put them into a privileged status with God. Now certainly, as we're going to find out in Romans chapter 3, um, there was huge advantages to being a Jew, um, spiritually speaking. But not in the sense that they thought it. They thought it made them immune to uh, God's judgment. It, they thought it made them immune to whatever else is happening out there uh, with God working. They were protected because of their privileged status, because of their circumcision, because of the law. And Paul is trying to deconstruct that. Well, we're honing in on that idea of how did circumcision function in the new life of the New Testament church why did it recede or how did it recede and what took its place? And we've obviously been talking about baptism um, in that way, which was the sign of the covenant that replaced um, circumcision as marking entrance into the church and the kingdom of God. Uh, we looked at the controversy about how there were Judaizers in the early church who were telling Gentiles, yes, it, Christ is good and you're saved by faith and grace, but you also need to get circumcision in order to be fully pleasing to God and how Paul deconstructs that in, in Galatians chapter 2. Now what we want to specifically address this morning is going to focus more on the baptism side. How did baptism function in the life of the early church? Specifically, who was it that was being baptized and why? And that's really important uh, that we understand how it functioned in the life of the church because we want to correspondingly um, say we want it to function in the same way in the life in the life of our church and specifically this is going to focus in on who do we baptize is it people who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repentance um, or and or those entering the covenant community albeit either little children or babies or servants or what have you um, in other words, is it functioning like it did in the Old Testament, or has the function changed? So I think the best place to start would be Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Super familiar passage, I think, probably to some of you. It marks the Great Commission. And so this is, Luke records this as the last saying of Jesus that he recorded. It doesn't mean it was the last one, period. We know in Acts that Jesus was, was talking all the way up to his ascension. But this is what Matthew closes with. And remember, um, Jesus has gathered up his disciples after his resurrection. He's given them final instructions. And here's what he says, Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here Jesus makes a very specific command that these apostles are not to just hang out in Jerusalem the rest of their lives. They are to spread the gospel. They are to build the church. And the metaphor, or not, not the metaphor, but, but the idea is kind of couched in this idea of going, making disciples, baptizing them. Now, this is much more than simply um, the disciples were to go around holding uh, huge evangelistic rallies and have altar calls and baptize those who came down front. That, that's, not, that's not the idea at all. Um, the idea is that in the New Testament, when people came to faith in Christ and they placed their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ publicly, they were then baptized both as a marker of their internal cleansing, both as a, a testimony to a watching world, um, but also as, as a marker of entrance into the church. And so this is why Jesus says, as you're baptizing them, what, what he really means here is you're incorporating them into the life of the church, and you're then teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so this idea of baptism, teaching, discipleship, it's all wound together. And baptism was not this symbolic act sort of handled over to the side um, as an add-on. It was part of people physically identifying with the church and with Lord Jesus and coming in. So, so it's interesting that Jesus makes it very clear that part of this baptizing process is that they are being taught, okay? It means they're being discipled. And, and certainly, this takes on the specter of who is Jesus talking about? Well, he's talking about people. He's talking about those who have a profession of faith, a cognizant um, understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done, and that they are coming to faith and being taught, okay? Now, I'll go over to Acts 2.37. We're going to see the same sort of idea. Peter is preaching to the crowds, and many are coming to know the Lord. And listen to what Peter says to them in Acts 2.37. Let's flip over there real fast. Okay, Acts 2.37. Now, when they heard this, they okay, let, 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 me, let me go back to verse 36. Peter speaking. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so what he's saying here is he's making this public proclamation People are responding in faith, and he says, this promise is not just for you, right? it's for your children, it's for, it's, it's for everyone, and the way, that, the way that we know this is for everyone is that God is calling a people to himself. It's open to anyone whom the Lord is calling, and it's interesting that every ap episode of baptism that we see in the New Testament is always, always, always accompanied by faith and repentance, it's always people who are um, of age making a cognizant profession of faith. Never do we see an explicit reference to children or, or even infants 
being baptized apart from faith. Okay, now a couple of things that those who affirm infant baptism will point to are what we would call household baptisms, and there's two of those in Acts. And I want to read those because um, I do want to. I do want to point out what I think is happening here, and then how people who affirm infant baptism would interpret these, and how I think we and our leadership here at Four Oaks and 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 other Baptistic churches would would interpret this. So Acts 16, 14. So this is the story of Lydia. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged this saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Well, there's not a lot of detail here. It just simply says she placed her faith in Christ and was baptized and also her household. That could have been servants. It could have been family members. We don't know. There's no age specified. But the whole context here is one of, of God calling people to himself. Okay, So Luke makes a point of mentioning that... Um, Lydia had her heart opened to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and that um, that that faith is being exercised, cognizant faith on her part, and it says that her household was baptized. And so sometimes there can be an argument made from silence. Well, see, there was probably little kids, little babies. We don't know. Okay, I think it's much more likely that this household that's being baptized also heard the word of the Lord, was also. Um, repentant and place their faith in Christ. Now, the text doesn't tell us. So anytime there is obscure text like this, or more ambivalent, we have to look to other texts to teach us what the Bible in totality says. And that's what we've been doing this morning so far, looking at Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 2. One more household baptism, um, Acts 16.30. And this is the jailer in Philippi. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and their house and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Okay. So again, um, repent and be baptized, you'll be saved, you and your household. But it specifically tells us that the word of the Lord came to him and to all who were in his house. So in other words, there is a, the baptisms that are happening there are in response from everybody hearing the word of the Lord, okay? Um, and what we see that's different now in the new covenant versus the old covenant is that, is that the way that God is gathering his people is different than in the Old Testament. It's similar but different. So in the Old Testament, if you were born an ethnic Jew, you were automatically, by a sign of circumcision, made part of the new co of the old covenant of the people of God. Now in that group, we know very clearly there were the, some who were saved and not saved, right? Um, even if they had received the sign of circumcision. Well, now God is doing a new work, and what He is doing as baptism replaces circumcision. So now the the ordinance of baptism, which marks entrance into the church is applied spiritually speaking, right, um, is, is given to those who were very explicit in professing their faith in Jesus Christ. 
And I think that this idea of there always being faith accompanied baptism is affirmed in a variety of places. But let me go back to Colossians chapter 2. We looked at this a little bit yesterday. And this is a classic passage that those who affirm infant baptism will say um, clearly shows that the mark of the covenant goes from circumcision to baptism, which we won't argue. Okay, I think that is true. But I think there's much more going on here as well. So let's read in Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So yes, we do see this transition from circumcision to baptism. But even in that context, Paul's very clear that people were baptized um, into God through faith in Jesus Christ, through faith in the powerful working of God. And I think this is one of the things that's at the heart of this issue and the way it relates to us today, is that the way baptism functioned in the, in the life of the early church is that this was a public proclamation. It was a time for people to publicly identify with the body of Christ. It was a time for them to claim Christ, to share their testimony, for people to come alongside of them, to be public witnesses to what they're doing. But in infant baptism, you lose all of that because the infants aren't taking the sign of the covenant for themselves or professing faith for themselves. It's the parents who are um, taking, making a covenant before God to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, which we, by the way, affirm. We all, we, amen, okay? But we just don't think that should be accompanied by a sign of baptism, which the New Testament seems to say, stay so clearly should be applied to those who were coming to faith in him. So in a, in a, this is why people who were born and raised in an infant baptistic home, baptized as babies, they come to faith in Christ, they're, they miss that opportunity to publicly identify in the same way as you would in a baptism, where you are taking an oath, where you're, taking, where you're being applied a sign and seal of the covenant, which means, okay, that we as a church want to continually be raising up new believers in Christ, publicly putting them forward as a sign of why we exist as a church. So for example, when we have our outdoor gathering in a couple of weeks, um, that service, it's gonna be a very public service outside, will have baptisms and testimonies. Um, and, but, but you lose that if all if baptism mainly functions as being applied to the infant children of of Christian families, so now there's a lot more I could say. And in fact, tomorrow I'm going to try to say it. So now, if a person who affirms infant baptism was listening to me right now, what would they say? You you might ask. Well, we'll talk about that tomorrow, and we'll also talk about how is it that infant baptism came to be the commonplace. Um, method of baptism in the church over time, in some segments of the churches, but certainly in the Roman Catholic Church, um, in Orthodox tradition. So we'll talk about that tomorrow, but for now, remember your baptism, remember your affirmation of faith, know that a great cloud of witnesses has gone before you, is, is cheering you on, 
and we trust and pray that he who began a good work in us will complete it till the day of Christ Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, we want to honor you in all that we do, in our beliefs, and we believe you've given baptism as a sign and as a seal, as part of our, our profession of faith, public proclamation. And Lord, let us live today in light of that profession of faith. Let us be cognizant of the covenant we have made with you um, through your blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody.